Today, we're going to be finishing up our look at Psalm 112. We've been looking at Psalm 112 all throughout the course of the summer months. And uh, during the course of the summer here, we've just been taking this one verse at a time. It's Psalm 112 is just 10 verses long. And uh, today's our, our final look at the psalm, as we'll be in verse 10. And uh, what we're going to be looking at is the, the fact that uh, in this particular verse, in the last verse here, it talks about the fact that basically a life that's set, ag- uh, that's set against God, it comes to nothing. And that's certainly not something that you and I would desire for our lives, but here this psalm ends with this thought that basically a life that's set against God, it really comes to nothing. And so uh, for us as believers in Jesus Christ, obviously that's not the outcome we desire for our lives. And so we're going to be talking basically how to live a life ultimately that isn't reflective of verse 10 of Psalm 112. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn there with me. I'm going to read the whole psalm like I've done each week, but we're going to be highlighting the final verse today, verse 10. And uh, this is what it says as we read together. Starting with verse 1 of Psalm 112, it says this. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. And then the verse we'll be highlighting today says this, The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this psalm together and to think about the kind of life that you have invited us to live, a life that is characterized by the character of your son, Jesus Christ, a life that is enthusiastic for your ways in the midst of a world that just wants its own way. And Lord, we're grateful that each week as we've been looking through the verses of this psalm that you have given us, your wisdom and your understanding and your guidance and your direction. Lord, we're grateful for the privilege to be able to think about these things. We're grateful for the opportunity that it gives us to grow in our walk with you. And we pray, Lord, that as we finish our study today of this beautiful psalm, that you'd give us more insight and more understanding as to what your will is for us, and ultimately how we can best reflect the heart of your Son in the midst of a fallen world. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all of these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I've mentioned uh, several times now as we've been going through Psalm 112, Psalm 112 truly is one of my favorite psalms. I love going through it. I love reading its content. It's something that I revisit just on a personal level quite regularly, Uh, I can't tell you at this point how many times just sitting in my favorite chair in our family room, I've opened up the Bible that I keep right next to the chair and have opened it to Psalm 112 just to remind me over and over and over again 
of the things that are stated in this psalm, because really when I look at this, I think, all right, this is the blueprint for the life that I'm trying to live. I'm trying to live a life that would match up with the things that are referenced here in this particular psalm. And when you look at this psalm, when you look at Psalm 112, you see here important traits of a person who has yielded their life over to the Lord. And you see those traits demonstrated in a variety of ways. And to summarize the things that we've been looking at over the past few months, we're told here that such a person fears the Lord, delights in His commandments, invests in the next generation, experiences material blessings, walks in righteousness, demonstrates grace and mercy, shows generosity, isn't easily shaken, doesn't fear bad news, trusts the Lord, experiences divinely orchestrated victories, cares for the poor, and is lifted up in honor. And again, as I look at this, I I, I think, all right, that's the kind of life I want to live because I believe that's the kind of life that ultimately is bringing glory to Jesus Christ, and it's demonstrating the kind of transformation that he takes place or that he facilitates in our hearts and takes place in our life because he's ultimately seeking to help us to reflect his priorities, his mind, to see things with his eyesight, to view life the way he views life. But as you know, and as I know, many people in this world hold to a very different set of values. You know, we just looked at these things, we've been looking at these things all throughout the course of the summer, but it's not typical of what this world prioritizes. When you look at what this world values, you can see that in the, in the pursuit of what most people feel is the best that this world can offer, many people reject God. And many people either seek to suppress any knowledge of him or seek to deny any admission of his existence. And instead of embracing him and instead of walking in his ways, what they end up doing is they carve out a path that can be characterized as as being set against him. It's a lifestyle and a mindset that's just set against the Lord and his desires. And when you look at what this psalm tells us, it tells us that that's a path that comes to nothing. It comes to nothing. It's It's a road that leads to shame. It's a road that leads to embarrassment. It's a road that, that leads to being forgotten. And sadly, I think we probably all watched people that we care about choose that path. I've been blessed with a very diverse set of family and friends, and maybe you have kind of the same thing going on in your life and in your family. And uh, while we all love each other, I think It's pretty obvious when I look at at the people that the Lord's brought into my life that some of us are going in the same direction and some of us very much aren't. So some of the people that that I love truly love the Lord and they trust Him to direct the counsel of, of their thinking and the course that their lives are taking. And then others that I deeply love, I can see that they're still going their own way. And it almost seems like if I had to characterize the way they're trying to live their lives, it's like they're testing how hard they could push against the will of God before he responds in some kind of fashion. Have you ever seen that? You just feel like, it's like you're, you know, people that you love, people that you care about, you watch them just testing against the will of God, just pushing and pushing, seeing if maybe in some way he'll react. I remember a conversation that I had. This would have been, I could tell you exactly when it was. It was in the spring of 1998. And I remember I was having a conversation with a member of my extended family And he decided to tell me his opinions about my decision to answer God's call on my life. So you know right away that's going to be a really fun conversation, right? So I was like, can I give you my opinion about your life? And you're like, oh, this is going to be great, right? And I still remember the conversation taking place. He wanted to give me all his opinions about my decision to answer God's calling on my life. And he was specifically in that moment referencing the fact that 
uh, I was about to start serving full-time in pastoral ministry, and this is the best I could paraphrase what what I I remember him saying, but he said, I realize that, that following the kind of path that you're on appeals to you. I see that it appeals to you, but he said, that's not the kind of life that interests me. It's like, that doesn't interest me. And then he went on to say, you know, I'm interested in different things. And he kind of listed some of the interesting things that he was, he was interested in. But basically, he then proceeded to take what I think is a very predictable path with his life. And the predictable path that he chose, this was volitional, he chose a life of addiction, adultery, abandonment, and the love of money. That's how I would summarize, you know, the past few decades of his life. You know, addiction, adultery, abandonment, the love of money just embraced it all. And here's the thing, he received everything he chased after. He got everything he chased after, and it only cost him his self-respect, the respect of his family, peace of mind, and most of what he earned. That's really how it all worked out. And so now I look at him in this particular spot, and I was thinking of him a lot this week in reference to the scripture that we're looking at today, because basically I think he would even admit this now at this point, and realize I'm being a bit anonymous, but you could pray for this anonymous person, because now he's depressed, and he's lonely, and he's scared. And I think sometimes in life, one of the things that the Lord does for us is He allows us to hit rock bottom, because in the midst of that context, we realize, you know what, my plan didn't work. And I think sometimes in the midst of our lowest spots, we recognize, you know what, I need the Lord to reach into my life, and so I'm praying that this family member will allow the Lord to reach into his life and will stop shaking his fists at God and mocking the things that matter to the heart of God. Because I'm convinced more than ever that a life that's set against God, it actually, it comes to nothing. A life that's set against God, it comes to nothing. It's fruitless. It's a wasted life. It's a life that misses the point of its own existence. You know what I mean by, by saying that? You know, when I'm calling that a life that misses the point of its own existence, even before defining that, I I would not want that to be uh, how my life is categorized, and I don't think that you would want your life categorized as a life that misses the point of its own existence. But why were we created? When you look at a summary of what Scripture tells us, we were created to glorify God. We were created to enjoy Him forever, not ignore Him, and not despise those who choose to follow Him. And the psalmist makes that very clear when you look at Psalm 112, verse 10. And the way he phrases it, he says it like this. He says, the wicked man sees it. So he's talking about this summary, all these different things in the life of one who trusts the Lord and follows the Lord. He says, the wicked man sees it. He sees the life of one trusting the Lord. The wicked man sees it and is angry. Or you could even say is angry about it. And it says, he gnashes his teeth and melts away gnashes his teeth and melts away, the desire of the wicked will perish. That's what it tells us in Psalm 112, verse 10. Now, I think that's interesting to look at that verse and to think about some of the specific things that are referenced in that verse, because it's a reminder to me, I think it's a reminder to all of us, that your life is being observed. Your life is is being watched. Your devotion to Jesus is being witnessed by those who are curious. Your response to God's offer of salvation, your response to the process of sanctification that the Holy Spirit is bringing you through, it's all being watched by others. It's being observed. And some will eventually see the light and invite God to do the very same thing in their life, but many will reject the the work that God is doing in your life. 
Many people that you know, many people that you care about will reject the work that God's doing in your life. They'll gnash their teeth against it, as this scripture says, and they'll basically just fume with anger as they watch the hand of God operate in your life. They'll speak against the ways God's working in your life. They'll speak against the fruit of your faith, and they'll keep going their own way while wondering why they're not experiencing similar blessings. The other day I saw a video, and I won't go into all the details of the video because that part wasn't that's not so much important, the context of it, but the fruit of the video I thought was very interesting. It was actually a video being hosted by a news reporter, and she was filming what I think she would consider to be a social experiment. as She was trying to talk about certain things with, with a couple uh, very divergent groups, groups of people that were, I think, in many respects, you would say, opposed to each other. So it was a video of two separate groups, and what she wanted to do was she wanted to see how each group would respond to the presence of a stranger, meaning the presence of someone from the other group. And so she brought one person from one of the groups to the other group and watched how they treated that man. And then that man uh, brought someone over to the other group, and then they observed how that group treated them. And basically one group welcomed strangers into their midst, and the other group seethed with anger at the other group because of what they thought they represented. And as I watched the seething group, as I watched, you know, like Psalm 112 talks about this idea of people just like fuming with anger and gnashing their teeth and just kind of having that, that demeanor. As I watched the seething group in this video, I couldn't help but see a picture of the posture of, of someone who is bent on wickedness like this psalm actually describes. Because I saw anger, I saw jealousy, I saw threats. And I thought, boy, isn't that a visual picture Right now, a very visible picture of what I think this psalmist is demonstrating in his words in Psalm 112. But what comes from a life that's bent on pursuing wickedness? You know, when you think, when you think about the content of this psalm, when you think about the outcome that's described here, what comes of a life that's bent on, on pursuing wickedness? Or what comes of the threats that are levied by a wicked person against someone who trusts in the Lord? Eventually, those people fade away, and their wicked desires and their wicked accusations fade away with them. I want to show you the first of two quotes by uh, Blaise Pascal, and maybe you know his name, maybe you don't. He lived uh, about 400 years ago. Uh, you know, I, I hear him quoted quite frequently in different theological works, but he, he, this is the first of two quotes I'm going to share from him today. One of them, he said this. He said, evil is easy and has infinite forms. He said, evil is easy and has infinite forms. What he was saying is, you know, people just invent ways of, of practicing wickedness. People invent ways of, of doing evil. And he said, and you know what? It's easy. And I always think about this from the, the perspective of parenting. When my parents were raising me, they did not have to teach me to do anything wrong. I came out of the box knowing exactly how to do that right? And those of you that are parents, you've noticed that as well. You never had to teach your children to do anything wrong, have you? Now, I, some of you are chuckling, right? You never had to. They just know, right? They just know. A friend of mine the other day, he posted a picture of his pantry, and you know what he really wanted everyone to see in the picture? He wanted everyone to see the empty and open bag of chips in the pantry. He's like, why? And he, he called out his son, not by name, but he said, 
why would my 17-year-old do this to me? You know, why would he do this to me? You know, why would he just take a bag of chips and finish it? First of all, he left none for me. And then just leave the empty bag in the pantry. And we chuckled. And then he said this. And I don't know of a parent that's ever followed through on this. So if any of you have ever done this, please let me know. Because everyone threatens this and no one does this. But everyone says, you know, when my kids have their own place, I'm going to just come to that house and I'm going to trash it. And I'm going to leave my shoes where people trip on it. And I'm going to spill food all over and all that. And everyone says it. And they really console themselves with that, right? And no one ever does it, right? So somebody, if someone does that, I need picture and maybe video evidence of you trashing your children's house someday. But anyway, anyway, evil's easy. <laughs> it's easy. You know, I mean, when you think about the things that are easy in life, the things that take no pre-thought most, most of the time, like anybody can just immerse themselves in evil. Anybody can. And, and Pascal, what did he say? He's like, evil's easy. Like, so if you want to aim for the low-hanging fruit, just, just spend your life pursuing wickedness. It's, it's a piece of cake. It comes to nothing. It's fruitless. You'll regret it, and you'll be forgotten. But if you want to take the easy life, that's the easy life. Just do it. Every, most everyone else you know is doing that. Just go with the crowd. Just follow the crowd, right? Just do what everybody else is doing. Evil's easy. Pascal said it's got infinite forms. We just come up with new ways to just blaspheme the name of God. We come up with new ways to offend our, our fellow man. And I think sometimes it's easy for me, and maybe you struggle with this a little bit too, but sometimes I think it's easy to look at present-day culture and to be filled with a sense of dread. Do you ever find yourself just looking at it and just saying like, where's this going to go next? Do you ever have, find yourself asking, it's like, what's the new weird thing we're going to treat like it's not weird? What's the new weird thing that we're going to be like, yeah, this is what we've always done. This is where humanity has been pointing this whole time. And it's like, no, that's crazy. Like, you're believing crazy things and doing crazy things. And I think sometimes it's easy to look at present-day culture and just be filled with dread. And those who know Jesus, I think we have a sensitivity toward sin and righteousness that's placed in our hearts by the presence of the Holy Spirit as He indwells us. And what He's doing is He's helping us see ourselves. He's helping us to see other people. He's helping us to see this world with brand new eyes. And we're learning to see this world from God's perspective. We're troubled over the things that trouble the heart of God. We're also rejoicing over the things that God delights in. But I also think we have moments that spark alarm because it can be very easy to look at our present circumstances and our present world and to mistakenly believe, at least in a, in a, in a moment of weakness, that it's never going to get any better. You ever look at it and just think, like, it's, it's gone. Like, it's never going to get any better. Like, that's it. As if we don't know how the Bible ends, right? As if we don't know what Scripture tells us is coming. Even warns us that these are things that we should expect during these last days. But we understand the Lord's heart for His creation. And then we watch His creation continually rebel against Him, and it troubles us. And I think it, it should trouble us because it grieves the heart of God, so it should grieve our hearts as well. But again, when we grieve, we grieve with hope. We grieve as individuals who know the ultimate outcome. And I'm grateful that the Lord ultimately helps us to see that there's more to life than what we're presently observing on this rebellious planet. I think it may seem like wickedness is flourishing, but the day is coming when that's going to be done away with forever. And so in the meantime, how are we called to live? Well, you and I are called to live in hope. And when the Bible uses the word hope, it's talking about something that you can be certain of. 
We tend to use the word hope like we're talking about wishes or maybes. But we're called to live in hope. We're called to look forward with confidence, with certainty, to the day when Jesus returns and restores this fallen world. That's what you and I have as the blessed hope that we get to look forward to. So while we await that day, what should we be doing? I mean, a pattern for living has been outlined for us in Psalm 112. I think there's really good examples that we can take from this portion of Scripture. So while we await that day when Christ returns, what should we be doing? Well, I think if we truly desire to walk by faith in Jesus, if we truly desire to, to ultimately live a life that brings Him glory, there really is a certain posture you can take in this world that's the fruit of genuine faith. And I think that there's a way that we can respond. You know, sometimes I wonder, how should I respond? What's the best way to respond when people gnash their teeth at us because they disapprove of Christ and because they disapprove of the character that he's developing within us? Think, what's the best way to respond? Can I give you a few suggestions on how to respond while we wait for Christ to return? Can I give you a few suggestions on how to respond in the midst of a world that really doesn't celebrate the things that you and I rejoice over? The first is this. Don't participate in evil. Just think about that statement for a second. Don't participate in evil. In the midst of a fallen world that embraces evil, don't participate in evil. I think we could set our hearts on choosing not to embrace the darkness that this world has been embracing. And I love what the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians in chapter 5. He gives us counsel there that I hope we'll notice. I want us to just think about this for a second. In Ephesians 5.11, he says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. He's saying, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So, that's something that I think we need to hear from time to time, because I think it's very easy for us to want to take part, at least a little bit, in some of the unfruitful works of darkness. And I think even though our greater desire is to follow Christ, I think there's a part of us that still finds wickedness tempting. You know, we're curious about it. I think sometimes we mistakenly feel like we can dip our toes in the gator-infested waters of sin and then somehow not get bit. But that's foolishness. Now, the other quote I want to share with us from Blaise Pascal that I think is kind of interesting, he was actually quoting Augustine when he said this, but he made this comment. He said, you know, St. Augustine teaches us that there is in each man a serpent, an Eve, and an Adam. Our senses and natural propensities are the serpent. The excitable desire is the Eve, and the reason, or, and reason is the Adam. Our nature tempts us perpetually. Criminal desire is often excited, but sin is not completed till reason consents. What's he saying? He's saying if you buy into it and decide, you know, it's a decision you're making. It seems to line up pretty well with what Paul said in Ephesians 5. He's like, look, take no part in the unfruitful work of darkness, or unfruitful works of darkness. So when I think about the unfruitful works of darkness, and I look at the fact that Scripture here is telling us, as the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write that in Ephesians 5.11, if he's saying take no part in this, that seems to me that I have the option and the ability to not take part in it. 
I don't have to consent to take part in it, even though there's a part of my, my, my old nature. What does my old nature want to do? My old nature wants to jump right in. Now I've been given a new nature through faith in Jesus Christ, and I can live in that nature, but I still have the old nature right now until I'm glorified in His presence. And as someone who still has the old nature, I think it's a good warning for me to think about the fact, like Pascal mentions, you know, there's a part of me that might very easily want to jump back into the very things that Christ has set me free from. And so the dilemma for, for us is whether we give in to our lesser desires to participate in darkness, or if we expose those desires to the light of Christ's gospel and follow Him. And I think the world will bark at us when we walk in the light, but I also don't, don't think we need to be intimidated by loud voices just because they're barking at us. I don't think we need to be intimidated by the voice of this world as it yells about the fact that we desire to follow Jesus. Paul tells us to expose the deeds of darkness so that they can ultimately be seen for what they really are. So don't talk yourself into giving in to them because you've glazed over sin's downside. Don't participate in evil. But here's what we do. This is, this is my struggle, and this is probably your struggle as well. When we give in to temptation, what, what typical pattern usually accompanies that? We talk ourselves out of understanding the downside of whatever decision we're about to make. We act like there isn't going to be a, a consequence. We act like there's not a downside. Or we act like it's not going to be that big of a deal or that consequential. And what Scripture tells us is, ultimately, there's always a downside to not listening to the voice of the Spirit of God. And so Scripture invites us to be men and women who don't participate in evil. Let me give you another suggestion. In the midst of a world that probably is not going to celebrate your decision to follow Christ, guard your mind. Now, I'm going to refer to this scripture in just a moment, but I want it up on the screen for just a moment because the things our minds are being fed will eventually come out in our lives. So whatever you feed your mind, it's going to come out in your life somewhere. The fruit of your mental diet will eventually become apparent. You will, and now I'll just say this in a personal way, you will see what my mind has been ingesting, you will see what my mind has been dwelling upon in the way I respond to trials, in the kind of speech that proceeds from my mouth, and in the way I interact with other people. You're going to see what my mind has been dwelling upon when you observe those things in my life. And I think Satan would love no more than to, to gain access to my mind and your mind and influence our thought life so that, so that uh, ultimately we would be a poor representation of what Christ wants to do in our lives, and, and that we would end up propagating wickedness instead of celebrating righteousness. And so with that in mind, the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to challenge believers to stand on guard against our minds being infiltrated. And he makes an interesting statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, and he says, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, he was sharing this information in the midst of a context where you had the Corinthian church that was really struggling with their embrace of worldliness. They were blessed in many ways, you, you know, materially, and I think some of that went to their head, and some of the people living in the midst of that decadent culture that was Corinth of their day, they looked at the things going on around them, and they thought, maybe I could have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of this going around as well. And they were adopting more and more of a worldly pattern of thinking into their, into their minds to the point 
where, you know, I said one of the things you could tell how a person is thinking is how they treat other people. You know, you could tell what you've been feeding your mind and how you treat other people. And one of the things that had started to, to come about in the church at Corinth was great division, where you had some people basically acting like they were better than other people. And it seems like, so when we participate in communion, what do we do? We all partake together. During the early church era, what was often done is communion was celebrated, the Lord's Supper was celebrated in the context of having a meal together. So they'd have a meal together and they would celebrate the, the, uh, the Lord's Supper. And what was happening, apparently, in the church at Corinth, you had wealthier believers that would just kind of sit with each other and enjoy more decadent foods. And then you'd have believers that weren't quite as well off and they'd be relegated to other areas and then somehow they're supposed to partake of communion the same time when one group's been excluded and the other group is living in decadence. And you kind of see these sort of things being demonstrated in their actions and activities toward each other. And Paul's saying, listen, don't adopt that mindset. That's how the world treats people. That's how the world operates. The world gravitates towards sexual immorality, which was something that the Corinthians were struggling with. The world classifies people in unbiblical ways. Don't do that. And Paul says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. He's talking about a manner of thinking, a manner of living that honors Christ with how we use our mind. And so I just want us to wrestle with this thought. Do you believe you have God-given power as far as how you navigate your life on this earth? Do you believe that God's actually given you his power to be able to navigate life on this earth in a particular way, in the midst of trials and temptations and worldly accusations? Do you actually believe that you have power, or do you think you're powerless in the midst of this world? I think many believers theologically believe they have power, but practically speaking, don't believe they personally have that same power. But we have power that the Spirit of God has given us, and I, I, I want us to just wrestle with the fact that, or the question, are we utilizing the power that the Holy Spirit grants us to take our thoughts captive to obey Christ, like the Apostle Paul was challenging the church at Corinth to do? Or do we feel like we just need to let our thought life run wild? I think that's something that we all should wrestle with. Are we feeding our mind a steady diet of God's Word or are we feeding our minds a steady diet of worldliness? Here's another one, and I want you to think about this. I hope everybody will hear me on this. This is, this is key. Are you surrounding yourself with people who point your mind toward Jesus, or is the company you keep attempting to drive you further and further away from Him? The people you surround yourself with are going to be the type of people that ultimately influence your thinking. They're going to message their values into your thinking. Are you surrounding yourself with people who point you toward Jesus, or are you surrounding yourself with people who are effectively trying to drive you away from Christ? Now, with this idea of guarding your mind, I want to share something really practical that probably some of you already practice. But I think one of the best opportunities that you'll be given each day to fill your mind with Christ-honoring inspiration. I think it's found in the morning. And I think you could shape a part of your morning routine to purposely include the reading of Scripture, uh, things like gospel-infused music. Uh, some of you have told me that you spend your morning listening to preaching and things like that. Some of you spend your morning in prayer. I am convinced that 
one of the easiest times to do that is while the rest of the world is asleep. While the rest of the world isn't paying attention, while the rest of the world seems asleep, I have to tell you, growing up, I don't know what kind of jobs you had growing up. I had a lot of different jobs growing up, and I'd, I, sometimes I'd have more than one at the same time. And uh, sometimes I've thought back to what some of my favorite tasks were when I was a, a kid. And I have to tell you, one of my favorite, favorite jobs that I ever had growing up was delivering newspapers. Now, at this point, that's, you know, almost ancient history. I don't even know that that's going to be a, a, a possible job at some point. And that was a traditional job for a young person at that point. It was one of my jobs. I did that before school, and then after school, I worked at my dad's grocery store. And then during the summers, I worked at a summer camp. And for a while, I also worked at a restaurant. And I was kind of juggling a variety of things. It sounds like a pattern I've kept in my adult life as well, except somehow I found a way to work amusement parks into that mix. But, but growing up, I had several jobs, and I have to tell you, delivering newspapers was one of my absolute favorites for a specific reason. I would wake up every morning at 4.50 a.m. Now, I had some of you, no? All right, well, that's what I would do. And um, I had a bunk bed. Now, I didn't have, uh, you know, all my siblings are, are sisters, and uh, I had a bunk bed. So sometimes I'd stay on my bottom bunk, sometimes I'd stay on my top bunk. But this was my pattern to guarantee I got up to deliver those newspapers. I had the loudest alarm clock and I would put it down low, and I would sleep on that top bunk so that I had to jump out of bed, and it would take a very volitional act to get back up into that bed for me to go back to sleep. And so I got into the pattern of at 4.50 in the morning, that alarm would go off, I would spring out of bed like an Olympic hurdler, you know, like when you would see them do that. I don't know, I wouldn't even dare try that now. But I would do it every morning. I got really good at doing it. I'd love, I, I think I even had pretty good form. I would put my arm on the railing, and I would loft off the bed. I would land on the floor, dismount, right, you know, without bounce. <laughs> Most days, upper nines, I would grade myself. Um, and then uh, I'd turn the alarm off, and I'd be like, all right, it's go time. And I'd get ready. And part of the route I was able to do with my car which was kind of neat, because I'd load all the papers up in my car. I'd had 83 houses on my route. And so I'd load the papers up in my car, and, but most of it I had to run. So I'd drive my car to a spot, and then I'd have to run to all the different houses. And what I discovered was people gave me better tips if I did something very illegal. <laughs> and what that was was people loved, so in Carbondale, most mailboxes aren't at the road, they're on your front porch. They're right by your front door, and people gave me better tips if I put their mail or if I put their uh, newspaper in their mailbox. And so I would run to a section, I'd go up all the steps and all that. It was really good cardio, and uh, and I'd put their newspaper in their mailbox, and uh, and I would do that all morning. But here's the thing: at 4:50 in the morning, nobody was awake. Nobody's up. The whole town was quiet. The whole town was quiet. I could have my car in the middle of the road. Busy roads in Carbondale, and there was no, I wasn't blocking traffic. Nobody was up. No one cared. And if a car did come by, there was no traffic in the opposing lane, so they could just pass it. And I would run around that town. I would jog around that town. I would love the fresh air in the morning. I loved feeling like I was the only one awake. And I loved the fact that it actually wasn't just physically rejuvenating. It was, the, it was spiritually refreshing because it was just me and God in the morning. Especially since I wasn't reading the paper. You know, the paper, what does that do? It stokes fear and anxiety. I didn't read it. I just delivered your anxiety, right? <laughs> I prayed for myself, and it's like, here's today's problems. 
see you tomorrow, tip well, right? But I have to say, even as, a, as an adult, one of the things that I've discovered is that if I want to spend concentrated time in scripture study, if I want to spend concentrated time in, in prayer, if I want to even just spend concentrated time in thought or application, it happens best during the margins of the day, either late at night or early in the morning when I feel like the rest of the world is asleep. And so if we're trying to feed our mind, if we're trying to guard our mind, can I encourage us to just be feeding our mind in a healthy way that ultimately steers us in that direction? But I want to give us one other challenge this morning. In the midst of a world that may bark at you for following Christ, can I just challenge us, thirdly, to just live in obedience? Live in obedience. Even though the world's saying, reject your, your Lord, reject your Savior, reject the teach, teaching of His Word, I want to encourage us to live in obedience. If you've read the book of Job, the book of Job is one of those books that I think a lot of people find harder to read. And when you're reading the book of Job, you see trials that he went through, and then you see the counsel that his friends attempted to give him, and some of the counsel sounds great, and some of the counsel demonstrates that they didn't fully understand what God was attempting to do in Job's life behind the scenes. But there's some interesting statements that are made by Job's friends in that book. And one of the statements that I find particularly interesting was made by Job's friend Eliphaz. And Eliphaz described the hearts and the actions of those who set themselves against God like this. In Job 15, verse 25, he, he, he describes it like this. He says, for they shake their fists at God, defying the Almighty. They shake their fists at God, defying the Almighty. That's the kind of posture toward God that the psalmist is speaking of in Psalm 112, isn't he? It's like the person who shakes their fist at God and then shakes their fist at anyone who seeks to follow God. It's a posture basically being taken by someone who's trying to act like they're sovereign. It's what happens when we're trying to live like we're our own God. But the man of character, or the woman of character, like described in Psalm 112, that, that person is not shaking their fists at God. That person is reaching out to God and welcoming God's embrace. That person realizes that this world may, may mock his desire to follow the Lord, but he chooses obedience anyway. And it's the obedience that's the fruit of genuine faith. Because I think genuine faith results in obedience. It's an obedience that comes right back to, to revering the Lord and delighting in the truth of His Word, like the psalmist expressed at the very start of Psalm 112, where he says that, you know, that, that the, the person of character that's being described here fears the Lord and delights in the, the Lord's commandments, revering the Lord, respecting His Word, now, in general, let me say this as I finish up, and I hope some of this will be encouraging to you. In general, I think I'm a pretty strong-willed person. I'm, now, the funny part about it is I'm usually polite about it, so it's like a mix. That's how I get away with it, right? I'm usually polite about it, but it's hard to budge me once I'm convinced that I'm correct about something. That could be good or bad, right? Ask Andrea. She'll tell you, right? By the way, she's the exact same way, and that's why we're a match made in heaven. But I have to tell you, that's worked, like the whole idea of um, just like that strong-willed attitude, it's worked to my benefit and it's worked to my detriment, depending on the season of my life. Because more than once, I've, I've, I've made the mistake of setting my heart against the Lord while convincing myself there would be no consequence for doing so. I was wrong. 
There's always, always, always in my life been a consequence for any act of rebellion I've taken against the Lord. There's always been a consequence. But here's the other thing. I've also experienced the blessing of living in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And when I submit to Him, you know what I experience? Greater peace. When I submit to Him, my mind stays in a better place. When I submit myself to Him, I witness better fruit coming from my life. So here's the thing, and I'll just say this as we finish up our study of this psalm. You can set your your life against the Lord if you choose, but I promise you, you'll eventually regret that decision. You set your heart against the Lord, you're going to regret that decision. Because a life that's set against Him, it comes to nothing. It comes to nothing, just as the psalm says. It comes to nothing. But if you want to live a life that's characterized by the blessings and the outcomes that were shown in this portion of Scripture... Submit your mind, submit your heart, submit your ambitions and your intentions, submit those things over to Jesus. He'll set your life on a firm foundation, he'll steer your life in the right direction, he'll soften your heart and ultimately ultimately he'll replace it with a heart that remains sensitive to his leading as you grow in your walk with him. The world may mock you. And by the way, rejoice if you experience that because that means your faith is becoming evident. But I'm just saying, the world may mock you, but Christ desires to embrace you and he ultimately desires to lift you up. Invite him into your life. Invite him to do just that. You will not regret submitting your heart, submitting your life, submitting your ambitions and intentions, submitting all those things over to Jesus Christ. He will not waste your life. He'll give you a life like you never had before. And you'll look back at the old life that you were living that you thought was life, and you'll realize that was death, and that you never had true life until you found it through Jesus Christ. And the type of fruit that we see demonstrated in Psalm 112 is the fruit that comes from genuine faith. I want to have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, and by His grace, that's what I have. I want you to have genuine faith in Jesus Christ as well. And as we walk with genuine faith in Jesus Christ, He produces wonderful things in your life and in my life, and He gives us the opportunity to glorify Him in the midst of a world that does not celebrate what He's doing, but He helps us to see right beyond it because we live with hope, knowing that ultimately He's restoring all things and that His will is going to be done and it's going to be good. He's going to return. He's going to restore all things, and ultimately His name is going to be glorified. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for giving us the privilege over the past group of weeks to be able to look at this psalm together. We're so grateful for it, Lord. We're grateful for the pattern that's illustrated to us in this portion of Scripture. We're grateful that we could see what the kind of fruit that you produce in a life that's submitted over to you. Lord, we know that this world is rather vocal about its preferences, and it's rather vocal about the type of things that, that it really disapproves of when it sees it in, in the lives of those who know you and love you. And Lord, there are many of us that have experienced that kind of accusation or that kind of vitriol from people that we love. There are people in our lives, people that we care about, people that we work with, people that we're related to that have spoken against the work that you're doing in our lives. There are friends that 
that we would love to have close friendships with, and yet all they seek to do is disparage our walk with you. They speak against it. They mock it. To them, it seems like foolishness. It seems like silliness. But Lord, we pray by the power of your Spirit that you would surround us with people who ultimately point us toward you, that you'd help us to understand the truth of your word, that we would understand the message of your gospel, that we would live these things out and bring glory to your name. And Lord, we're grateful to be able to see the ways in which you work in the life of those that, that are completely just submitted over to your lordship. Lord, I have tried to call the, the shots in my own life and it didn't work. And I know I'm not the only one. I think all of us have done that to one degree or another. But Lord, there's such a, a joyful experience that we get to experience when we submit ourselves over to you when we recognize the fact that our lives are safe in your hands. So Lord, if we've been trying to steer our own direction, if we've been trying to ultimately make, uh, make decisions that really are not in line with your word, but go more line, along the line of, of what this world prefers, we pray that you'd help us to correct course as your spirit implores us to do so. And again, Lord, thank you so much for the counsel of your word. Thank you for speaking that to our minds and our hearts. And by your grace, we pray that, it, that we would live it out so that ultimately the kind of life that we're living would be a life that, that brings glory to you, and it's a life that, that ultimately is living out the purpose for which it was given. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all of these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.